following talk is from New Community. For more information about New Community, check out newcommunitychurch.org.uk. Thanks for listening. We today are in part two of a series called Step Into the Story. Last week we opened up looking at the whole thing of join the story. Today we're going to look at this whole thing of living the story. In July 1861, so a few years ago now, President Abraham Lincoln, him with the beard and the hat, appointed a guy called George B. McLennan to head up the new army of the Potomac, which was a section of the U.S. military. On paper, George B. McLennan was Uh, the best general that Abraham Lincoln could possibly have hoped for. He was described as the young Napoleon. He had an incredible military mind. He was an incredible strategist. He was an incredible infuser of people. He was an incredible organizer. He knew all the theory about war. He was a guy who at age 15 had been accepted into what's called West Point, which is the US uh, military academy. At 15 years old, he was accepted there, and he came second in his class. The only reason he didn't come first is because the guy who beat him could draw maps better than he could. He wasn't a very good map drawer, but he had this incredible military strategic mind. He had an incredible ability to recruit people and to organize people. And as soon as he was appointed, he expanded the ranks of the army from 50,000 to 168,000 men, all the while bringing a, a new level of organization and precision to the troops that absolutely stunned his superior officers. Furthermore, his his troops absolutely loved him. The men loved him. Even in the midst of the grueling conditions of the Civil War at the time in America, he kept their morale high. He inspired them to, to give more and do more because the cause, he told them, was worth it, and they believed him. And by October 1861, so only a few months later, President Lincoln had appointed him general-in-chief of the whole of the army. He was the man. He had all the experience. He had all the intelligence. He had all the ability. He had a powerhouse powerhouse army behind him that outnumbered their enemies by two to one. He was incredible. He was the guy. There's just one problem with George B. McClellan, is that this was a man who wouldn't fight. And so for weeks and weeks and weeks, General McClellan had readied his position, he had organized, he had strategized, he had, he had set himself up while the opposition's army, the enemy, lay dangerously exposed just a few miles away. All they needed to do was swoop in and actually fight and they would destroy the enemy. President Abraham Lincoln uh, continually encouraged McClellan to put his numerical advantage to good use, to, to swoop in, to crush the enemy rebellion with one swift attack. That's really all it needed. McClellan understood the strategy. He knew that the odds were favorable, but he still wouldn't or couldn't pull the trigger and go and actually fight. And after an excruciating year of inactivity, Lincoln removed, President Lincoln removed the greatest military mind of his time and eventually replaced him with a man who had at best half of his natural talent, but a man who would have had a fight with his own shadow, a guy called Ulysses S. Grant, who ended up with absolutely stunning victories. See, the greatest asset of a military man is his ability to fight. Doesn't matter how good he knows about stuff, how much planning he can put into stuff, how much he can read about stuff, how much he can theorize about stuff. It's his ability to fight, fight. 
Without all of that, all these other assets, all these other abilities, all these other skills are, are frankly a little bit redundant, pretty much useless. It might look all impressive, but at the end of the day, it doesn't actually do his primary task, his primary job. And there are many skills, there are many abilities in church that are important in church life, okay? Don't worry, some of you are freaking out. Fighting is not one of them. We're not going to go there. But there's one skill, there's one asset, there's one ability, there's one absolute priority that without, without this one, without giving our attention to this, everything else we do is ultimately redundant and a bit useless. And we might look like we know what we're doing and we might look really impressive in this way and that way, but fundamentally without this one thing, we're a bit like the general who won't fight. We fail, ultimately. And everything we do, therefore, is ultimately lined up to head us in the direction of doing this one thing, making disciples. See, making disciples is right at the heart of what we are all about as a church. That's the, that's the primary call. That's the primary responsibility on us. That's our primary thing, without which we can do everything else. If we don't do that, we're like the general who won't fight. It might look impressive, it might sound impressive, it might have this, 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 and this going on, but fundamentally, what we're called to is make disciples. The Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. And let's just be really clear what we mean by this. Discipleship is basically a journey. Making disciples basically starts like this. You take people, you go and find people who are not Christians, who are not believers, who, who don't know Jesus, you introduce them to Jesus, they commit their life to following Jesus, therefore becoming a disciple. And then they, whilst they might be a baby Christian, they might be a, uh, an immature, if you like, in a, not in a negative sense, but just in a lack of knowledge and understanding and experience, they're a baby Christian, they're a disciple. And discipleship journey is then helping them to grow in Christ. And it begins this long journey that one day will end with a moment where they are presented fully mature in Christ as we reach, see Jesus face to face. And every single one of us in this room, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what your background, is somewhere on that journey. You might not be a Christian. Someone might just have brought you along to introduce you to Christ. You might be a baby Christian, someone who's very recently just become a Christian. You might be somebody who's been a Christian for a while but you feel a sense of immaturity perhaps or you feel a sense of growing maturity and some of us are closer at that other end to the moment where we're going to be presented mature in Christ but all of us are somewhere on this pathway here's a deep conviction that I have that we have as a church here that the best way to make disciples is in community and on mission we believe that the deepest community comes when we're on mission together as disciples, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we believe that the most effective mission takes place when people both hear the gospel proclaimed by faithful disciples and see it lived out in vibrant community. So once again, what I'm going to ask you to do, just as I asked you last week, for those of you who are here... I'm going to end today by asking you to step once again into the story, this big story of what God is doing here in this church and in the global church and in the earth as a whole. And last week I asked you to join it. I asked you to recognize that your story, the story of your life, what you give yourself to is found only, only finds its real meaning and purpose and hope in the context of the big story of God. And I asked you last week, join the story. Give yourself to something bigger than just pottering around, doing our own little things. Today I'm going to ask you to live 
the story. I'm going to ask you not just to join in and say, yeah, I'm part of that. I'm going to ask you to actually say, I'm all in. I'm going to live this out. You see, central to living the story is committing to being a disciple. Let's just be really clear. The second you became a follower of Jesus, the second you put your trust in him, you became one of his disciples. That's all it means. You become a follower, a learner, somebody who, who follows him. That's, that's what it is. You became a disciple. The question is, are you going to commit to being a disciple? Are you going to commit to growing as a disciple? Are you going to commit to growing and maturing in such a way that this time next year you're further along this journey than you currently are now? That this time in two years you'll be further along when you will be next year? That this, you're going to commit to, to moving along this, this pathway this, of, of discipleship? I'm asking you today to commit yourself to growing in Christ, to growing as a disciple. And central to that, central to being a disciple is committing yourself to being part of community. And so by the end of today, I'm going to ask you to to commit to being a disciple, to commit to growing in Christ, and to commit to joining a community or, as we work it out here, a community and or a course. I'm asking you not just to tick a box. I did what you said, tick the box, I filled it in, I clicked the button on church app, I went on the website, I ticked that. But actually to give ourselves fully to growing, committing ourselves to growing in Christ. Not to talk about it, not to strategize about it, not to plan about it, not to become an expert in how it might look and how it should do and go on 58 training courses in order to get to that place, but to just fully, like, you, uh, like Grant, Ulysses Grant, just go for it, just do it. We might not be experts but we're not called to be experts. We're called to be those who faithfully follow Jesus. And if you're not a Christian here today, I'm going to ask you to commit yourself at the end of this meeting not to becoming a Christian. You might want to do that. You might think, yeah, I I like this story. I believe it. I believe that there is a king whose name is Jesus. I believe that I need to submit my life to him. But even not necessarily where you're going to get to, I'm going to ask you if you're not a Christian here today to commit to at least exploring this story. Because if the claims that we've made last week, this week, the week after, the week after that, the week after that, if they are true, that has serious eternal consequences for you. And at the very least, there's a, there's an, a, a responsibility, I guess, for yourself in all good conscience to go and explore those things. So at the end of the day, there's going to be an opportunity for you to respond and I'm going to encourage you to do that. And at the very least, I'm going to ask you to commit to coming on an Alpha course, asking those big questions, exploring what it's all about. So for everyone, there's somewhere where we're going to go at the end of this. And as I said last week, I make no apologies for this. I honestly believe that the most important decision you ever have to make is the decision that you are faced with when Jesus comes to you and says, I'm the king, are you going to surrender your life? And the most important decision that any of us can ever make in, after we've made that decision, yes, is to then honor that decision and say, Lord, my life now is not mine, it's yours. And I want to grow in you to all the things that you have for me. So that's where we're heading. That's kind of just upfront about it. The magazine thing that you should have got last week or you should have got today as you came in. If you haven't got, you can pick up. It's all just there to help you make that decision of where you go. But that's fundamentally where we're going. And before we get there, what I want to do is just offer three reasons why you should commit yourself to community, why you should give yourself to it, why you should more than tick the box, you should actually come and play an active part. And the first is this, is community is not so much something we do as something we are. 
Because community is right at the very heart of this big story of God. We live in a highly individualistic culture. Everything's about me, or you in your situation, your context. We, we've been brought up from an early age just to think through everything in terms of me. How does this affect me? Every decision that's ever made. Or how does this affect me? Why do I vote the way I do? Because how fundamentally does it affect me? How, why do I make the decisions I make? Because how fundamentally does this affect me? We've brought up in this highly individualistic culture, and it affects everything. So there's a summary of the gospel that goes like this. God made you to know him, but your sin cuts you off from God. And so God sent his son to die in your place and reconcile you back to God. Now you can know God and look forward to living with him forever. Lots of you will have heard that. Lots of you will have said, if asked how, what is the gospel, that would be your answer. And you're not wrong, don't worry. Some of you are thinking, I'm pretty sure that is the gospel. And yeah, it is. But it's not the full picture. It's not the full story of what the gospel is. It's not the, the whole truth. You see, the Bible story, the big story of God is, is not a story of God just saving individuals, but of God saving a people. But of God gathering for himself a community, a new humanity. The Christian community is not an add-on to the gospel. It's integral to it. And so every page, every chapter of the big story of God reflects this truth. All the way back in creation, we, are, we see we're made in the image of a communal God. And as we're relational beings who are supposed to live in community. It's not good for man to be alone, we're told. We see in the fall, our rebellion creates conflict between us and God. It separates us from us and God, but also it separates us from our fellow mankind. There's a broken community relationship. Then we see the next bit in the story of the whole thing of Abraham. The promise, of Abraham, the promise to Abraham is the gospel and announced in advance, we're told in Galatians 3. And setting the whole agenda now from Genesis 12 onwards of the big Bible story is the promise from God, at the very heart of his story, that he is gathering for himself a new people. And we see it as we roll into the Exodus. Because of his promise to Abraham, God sets her out to make and set his people through, free. And so through Moses, he says, I will take you as my own people. I will be your God in Exodus 6. And God himself throughout that lives with the people as they're wandering around in the desert. That's what the whole thing of, of uh, the tabernacle and the pillars of cloud and fire. If you've ever read the Old Testament, what's all that about? That's God dwelling with his people. But man backs off and separates themselves from God because of their sin and God's holiness and, and thus starts this whole story of Israel where God is wanting to dwell with his people and, and Israel, the people of God, continually muck up and turn their own ways and do their own thing and separate themselves off because they're not living as they should do. And then God sends the prophets, all those books, minor prophets and the major prophets and all of the stuff you think, what's all that about? Well, fundamentally what it's about is God reminding his people that he came for a people. He says in, in Jeremiah 31, for example, I will be their God and they will be my people. Even Zechariah, those books you think, I'm not entirely sure what that's all about. It's about God promising that he has come for his people. And then we see the culmination of the story, Jesus Christ. 
And the cross reconciles us, yes, back to God, but also to one another. That's what the whole bit of Ephesians 2 and 3 is all about, how we're reconciled back together as a new humanity. Christ did not die for ad hoc individuals. We've all said it. We've all heard it. We said, I've said it. God, if I was the only person on earth, you would still die for me. Well, sorry to burst your little bubble, but no. He didn't die for ad hoc individuals. He died for a people. Now, the people, of course, is made up of individuals. So Christ did die for you, but he came for a people. He's always been about a people. And when the age of the church is established, when Jesus ascends back to heaven, it's all about a people, God's faithful people described as the true children of Abraham. And then one day in the new creation, in the new heavens and the new earth, we read in Revelation 21, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Why am I laboring this for each bit? Because this is really important. You see, if it's just about individuals, if God just came for individuals, then church, all it really is, is just a nice support network for individuals. Me and my walk with Jesus, and church kind of helps me with that a little bit. But no, 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 God didn't, Jesus didn't die just purely for individuals. He came for a people. And so church is not secondary. It's not add-on. It's fundamentally why he came. For his bride, for his people. You, the second you became a Christian wasn't just you entering into me and Jesus. It was you now being part of the people of God, the family of God, the big community of God. And that's that sense of the church global, the, all the Christians who've ever lived. That's the family that you're suddenly part of. But then there's local expressions of church. This is why giving yourself to local community, local church is so important. And that actually goes way beyond just turning up on a Sunday. It's why we've broken down our church into lots of different communities because this is just too big for us to know everybody and be known by everybody and love, well we should love everybody but you know what I mean, in a practical actually know what's going on and so we've broken it down into smaller communities because fundamentally community is right at the heart of God's big story. The second you became a Christian, 1 Peter 2 verse 9, this is you. You're a Christian here today, this is is you. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What a great picture of community. We are created to be a people, to be in community, but our sin has separated us from God and from one another. Everything's fractured and broken. And the minute we accept Jesus, the minute we have our sin forgiven, we are immediately part of this new humanity. And Peter comes in right in these verses and he straight away just reminds us of our identity. It's not just about you. You are part of something much bigger than yourself. We have a new identity that comes from our faith in Christ and that now binds us together. We are now, whether you like it or not, brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus has purchased that identity for you, for me, for us. And now what we've got to get our heads around is that community is fundamentally not something we do, but it's at the very heart of the identity of who we now are. And so it's not about, well, 
I've become a Christian and now I've got to do, 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 do. No, no, no. Peter makes the point absolutely crystal clear here. You've become a Christian and now you are part of community. You, it's intrinsic to your whole identity. It's the very essence of now who you are. You're one of the family you're in. It's why we've called our communities communities and not groups. Because group gives the idea of, of something that you attend. Community is something that you're part of. Just think of it this way for a moment. I, every day of my life, pretty much, the exception of Sundays, because I leave too early, I sit down and have breakfast with my wife and with my kids. We talk, we read the Bible, we pray together, I then kiss them all goodbye, and I go to work, usually with like toothpaste stains all around my legs where they've cuddled me and, and milk and everything. I have that slightly embarrassing moment where you get somewhere in a meeting and it's literally all down you, and you're like, there is no explanation for this that you're going to believe. And then I come home, I go work eight hours, nine hours, whatever it is, and I come home and uh, we kind of eat dinner together and we bundle and, and we, we wrestle on the floor and then the kids are like, mom and dad, that's enough, come and play with us. And, and we have kind of <laughs> a whole whatever it is we're doing, we have tea, we give them their bath and then we go on to whatever we're doing in the evening, usually more wrestling and bundling and it's not code for anything else, it's literally fighting. And... Uh, <laughs> Here's the question. At which point of my day am I more or less part of the family? When I leave the house and go off and do what I do, is that, am I suddenly no longer part of the family? Is there a moment where I shut the door and it's like, well, that's it, I moved on now, nothing to do with me anymore, they're not my family. Every part of my day, every moment of my life, I am part of that family. And there are moments, for sure, there are moments where I'm specifically engaged with it. And my life has got to the stage where I diarize it in now. Remember children, hang out with children. That's, that's where I've got to. I know it's sad, but it just it helps me remember that I've got them. <laughs> and I need to do something with them. But there are moments where I explicitly meet with them and it's family time and nothing will break that. And I don't answer my phone, I don't even look at it. And I'm not engaged with anything other than that. I'm part of the family then. But right now, my kids aren't here. They're somewhere else. I, am I haven't seen them today, so I'm assuming they're in kids' work. But I'm no less their dad now when I'm not with them than when I have lunch with them later. I'm no less involved in the family when, when I, I'm doing something than when I'm not. Why am I saying that? Because family is intrinsically part of my identity. And community is intrinsically part of my identity in Christ. And of course, there will be moments where we meet together. It's why we have gatherings of communities like Wednesday night we might meet or Saturday morning we might meet or Thursday morning we might meet on a weekly or fortnightly basis. But there's no point where I'm not part of it. What we're not trying to do is make meetings that people attend. We're so quick to put our life into different boxes. Work, family, fun, usually separate from family, church, community, discipleship. Oh man, how am I ever going to fit this in? You don't really understand. My work is not a box that's that big. My work is a box that's that big. Or my family life right now is not this neat little thing. It's like a splurge that has dominated everything. There's no way I can go. I know some of you immediately thinking this. Oh, okay, this is the, the sermon where they talk about why we should go attend a small week group. Not going to happen in my life, so I'm going to switch off. Listen, this is what I'm saying to you. It's not about attending these meetings. And when your family life is such a splurge that you, there's just no way you can, that's when you need community more than ever. 
And it's not about coming along on a Wednesday night between 8 and 9.30. It's about belonging to a people who will get alongside you and support you and care for you and do the stuff and we'll work it around whether you come or you don't. Now, for sure, there are some moments where we actually do need to actively engage and get involved. If I never spend any time with Han and the kids, well, biologically, I guess I'm still their, my, still their father, but I can't really, in any real sense, say I'm part of that family if I never, ever see them. So there are moments where we know, no, 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 we do, that's why we meet. But it's not fundamentally about meetings. It's about giving ourselves to something. It's about understanding that community is, uh, in its basis, is it really fundamentally about our identity. And we do things out of our identity, not because, in order to achieve our identity. And we see, second reason why we should be part of communities, is we see that fundamentally community is at the heart of what it is to be part of a local church. Last week I told you about Luke and his gospel all about Jesus. Well, the second book Luke wrote was Acts. And Acts tells the story of the local church and how they lived and what they did. And the book of Acts demonstrates to us how we are to live as ordinary Christians. And community is right at the heart of the story. And at no point throughout the book of Acts does Luke suggest that his description of church life is abnormal. So we see right from Luke 2. He expects us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 4, he expects us to, uh, to build communities like the one in Jerusalem, loving one another, sharing what, they, what we had, giving generously of our time and our effort and our finances and our possessions. We see elsewhere in Acts 4 that we're supposed to be proclaiming God's what's great story boldly. We see in Acts 5 that we're proving what we say by seeing miracles happen. We see also in Acts 5 that we're to deal with church members who pretend to live this big story of God, but really they're living according to the deceitful stories of the world. How do you know that unless you're part of community? Lots of people say, I want to sign up for the good bits of community, but no one's can challenge me. Who do they think they are asking me why I'm doing that and what's going on about that? That's at the very heart of community. We're claiming to be those who are representing Jesus Christ. And, and when our lives don't line up to that, being part of community, being part of church big part of it is people coming and saying, hey, listen, you say you're doing this. I'm not so sure you are. That's not easy. I've been in that situation myself. People challenging me and challenging others. It takes a lot of guts. It takes a lot of courage. It's not very pleasant. It's not very nice. But ultimately, it's not about correcting people. It's about the glory of Christ. It's about we're living for something bigger because we're part of a much bigger story. And it's your life lining up to it. And for sure, people will get that wrong, and they do tone, what they say, how they say it. Sometimes they will come from motives which are just, to be honest, not right. They're right in what they're doing, but they've come at it a different way. In those moments, it's not run away. Those moments, it's remember uh, that your identity is in community and you, like everybody else, is not perfect and will make mistakes. That's where we forgive. That's where we reconcile. That's where we hold our hands up and say, hey, I got that wrong. I'm really sorry. My tone, my attitude, my, the way I did it was not helpful. It was not good. It was not honoring. It was not encouraging. I didn't seek to build you up. I really was probably, if I'm honest, tearing you down. Forgive me. And we say, you're forgiven. It doesn't make it easy. I'm not pretending it is, not for one minute. You see, we make a mistake when we look at the New Testament church and we say, well, it was different for them. Everyone got on really well. They were all... It was all really friendly and everyone, no, it wasn't. Nowhere near them. James and John were called the sons of thunder. And it wasn't a compliment. 
It's because they just spent their entire time arguing with each other about who was the best. And they literally, they were called the sons of thunder. They didn't, they didn't necessarily get on, the time, on all the time. We look at the early church and we think, well, it was a brilliantly led organization. No, it wasn't. The leaders of it were just people like me and, and you, just very ordinary people whose lives have been turned upside down by an extraordinary God. Got nothing to do with ability, nothing to do with like some special strategic gifting or whatever. It's to do with the fact that God broke in and he rescued and redeemed and he called certain people into a leadership position and certain people into another position in order that this whole thing might work. The other thing, we look at the early church and we go, well, of course they shared all their possessions. They didn't really have anything back then. It's much easier when you don't have much. Hmm. I'm not so sure. I think Acts 4 is one of the most challenging passages in the whole of Scripture. They shared everything. And we quickly say, well, we have a welfare state, so that, that will take care of them. Or, or I've just got too much stuff. How would I even go about sharing it? Now, listen, I'm not saying that the outworking of this is you go home and you bring all your stuff around to my house and give it to me or to somebody else's house. That's, that's not right. That's not what I'm saying. It's that attitude of, hey, we're family. What's mine is yours if you need it. I'll give you my time. I'll give you my attention. I'll give you whatever I can serve. And this church is full of people who practice that and do that and love and love people like that and that's the kind of church we need to continue to be and we need in places to work a little bit harder at it we need to recognize that that is foundational to what we're about and we need to understand that at the same time communities are this fundamental way in which we're going to impact the community around us we live in a really broken world like really broken Hannah and I were just talking yesterday as we were driving somewhere last night just about how dark the world is we live in and I don't mean like a, an abstract up there thing I mean in a reality we were just talking about people we know in our neighborhood I won't this goes public so I'm not going to say anything but just of the five or six people we know in our immediate vicinity just the brokenness in their lives it's not their fault They're just we're living in a fallen world you know it I know it. And God has ordained it in his wisdom that the messy, broken communities that we are will shine like stars in a dark and crooked generation in order to impact those messy communities out there who don't know Christ. Because as messy and as mucked up and as mistake-ridden as we are, fundamentally, we're in Christ and so therefore we're good news. Not because ourselves, I'm not good news to anybody, but in Christ because he has filled me with his spirit and because I'm now a carrier of this big story, this gospel story, I am now intrinsically good news, not because of what I do, but because of who he is and the words that I say and the actions I can now do because he loved me, I can now love others and display it to a broken world. Community is right at the heart of that. That's what our communities are all about. They're all on mission to a particular area, to a particular people group, to a particular context. And you think, well, I'm not sure necessarily that is. Well, some of them, the mission and where it is, is essentially spending time together in order to grow in God together in order that we might be more effective witnesses to the communities, the context, the streets where we live. Fundamentally, all our communities and courses are at heart about this. Our identity in Christ lived out. The final thing, the third thing to say about why you should be part of community, because it's in community and in community alone 
Say that again, it's in community. And I really do believe this, in community alone, that you are going to grow in Christ. You're going to grow as a disciple. Being a Christian is not a solo task. It's not a thing of, I will just get better. I will lock myself away in my room. I will do this. I will do this. No, no, we need one another. There's an article in the magazine that you can read. Some of you might have read it. I wrote it because it's true. Not anything else that's in there is not true, but there we go. A few months ago, I bought myself a road bike. I'd, ne- I'd never been into to cycling, um, particularly because, well, you know, like Liker and just cyclists generally, and all that kind of stuff. But a few months ago, I thought, there's a few guys in our office who just do it all the time. I thought, well, yeah, I'm going to go, have a go. So I bought myself a road bike, and I was cycling and, and enjoying it and going out quite well. And then I discovered this thing called Strava. Now, without boring you, Strava is basically an app, which means you can uh, kind of log all your, all your rides, and it records everything, like how far you've gone, how fast you've gone, your average speed, your cadence, your heart rate, all these. I mean, it's a competitive man's dream, and everybody else thinks you weird people. But it's, it's really quite interesting. I'm riding, I'm thinking I'm getting really quite good at this. Then I decide to go for a ride with my friend, because I think I'm, I'm pretty good. I've been doing this for a few weeks. I'm really quite strong now. My Strava is getting better and better and better. I go for a ride with this friend, and we did 30-something miles, and I described it afterwards as the tortoise and the hare, except in this one, the hare won emphatically, and I was the tortoise. And it was a little bit embarrassing, because no matter wherever I went, but basically, we'd, we'd be riding together, and then we'd come to a hill, and uh, he was, for about the first three miles, was really friendly, and would just ride with me next to me, like maybe a mile and a half, actually, to be fair to him. And I, I kind of made the mistake at one point of saying, listen, if you want to just go up the hill, that's fine. Okay, and he shot off. The rest of the ride, like 30-odd miles, was basically me cycling a little bit, him shooting off, me having no idea where he is, going around each bend thinking, hey, I'll catch him eventually, and he's not there. And then about five or six miles later, I would catch him up with him, but only because he was sat down by the side of the road waiting for me. And I would just, I'm not stopping, I can't stop. If I stop, I'm not going to be able to get back on again and just go past him. About half a minute later, he would fly past me and we'd repeat the same thing about five or six times for the whole ride. It was incredibly embarrassing. I arrived home, lay on the floor and said to Han, I'm never going out with that guy ever again. In fact, I'm never going to talk to him ever again. It was embarrassing. I then checked my Strava thing. And to my surprise, it was actually the quickest I'd ever ridden. Like, I'd never gone that fast before. I'd never done that well before. And it's broken down into segments, sections of road. I told you it was boring. And it tells you how fast you've gone on each bit. I'd never done it as well. I was like, whoa. This last week, I went out for a ride with four, four of us from the office. And uh, we would 40-odd miles during the day. And when I came back, 14 PBs I'd set myself. 14. 14 sections. I'd gone faster than I'd ever gone before. Why am I telling you this? Because I still wasn't going anywhere near as fast as those guys. I'm telling you this because every time I rode with others, or I still ride with others, I get faster. I grow. I get quicker. I get better. It's not linear. Sometimes I'm doing worse than others. Sometimes it feels like I'm going backwards. But fundamentally, I ride with other people. I get better. Christian life is exactly the same. You live it with others, you run it with others, you include others in it, you're going to grow. You're not going to get faster, you're not going to get quicker. I mean, you might find Bible verses quicker when you spend time with certain people, but it's fundamentally, you're not going to grow like that, but you're going to grow more in Christ-likeness. 
You're going to grow more with him. You're going to mature more in Christ. At times, it's painful. When I ride my bike with those guys, at times, I just want to cry. At times, I just want to stop. I mean, seriously, there's some hills that I've gone up sometimes with them, but 13 minutes later, they're, uh, they're sitting at the top waiting for me, and I appear, <laughs> and they're like, how, how is it possible to have gone that slowly? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know, but I'm here. <laughs> at times, you're just going to want to quit. But when you run with other people, when you walk with other people, when you live your life with other people, when you live in the context of community, those are the moments where you need people the most. When you want to quit, someone with you. When you want to cry, there's someone with you. When you want to just lay down and frankly die, there's someone with you. Encouraging you, cajoling you, challenging you. When I ride with those guys, they're really friendly except when they just get had a bit of enough and then they have a go. Can you just hurry up? <laughs> I'm trying. It's exactly the same in a Christian life. Walk with you. Listen, you need to stop that now. You need to pick that up. You need to do that. You need to give yourself to this. All in that context of I'm helping you on this journey to grow. So we as a church want to give ourselves to communities. We want everybody who calls new community their home to get themselves into community because fundamentally... We see that they're central to it, central to the big story of God. We see fundamentally that community is right at the very heart of what it is to be a Christian. You are now part of the family. It's not something you do, it's something you are. We see right throughout the, the New Testament, the incredible advance that the, that the early church saw in just 28 years. They went all the way around the then known world because they fundamentally gave themselves to this thing that wasn't about them, it was bigger. And we believe that growing in Christ is foundationally made possible because of other people who have run with us, who run ahead of us, who run alongside us, who, who come from behind and encourage us and push us forward and propel us forward. Have you grown more in God in the last 12 months? Here's what I'm going to ask you to do, to commit to growing more in God in the next 12 months. It's not as a result of your effort. It's a result of the grace of God. And it's us putting ourselves in the position to grow in Christ. And we do that when we give ourselves to community. There's a whole load of choices in the church right now. We're running courses and communities exactly the same. We believe all our courses designed a bit like communities to build community together, to get to know one another, to encourage one another. So you can sign up to a community and a course. You can sign up to just a community, just a course. You can sign up to as many of them as you want if you really like to. Just encourage you it's better to go to one thing all the time than lots of things occasionally. If your life situation and circumstances such you think, I'm just not sure I can physically get to loads of stuff, that doesn't matter. We'll find something for you to help you and we'll wrap around you in order to help you in your journey. That's what it's about. Will we do it perfectly? No. Will we make some mistakes? Probably. Will some of you get offended because you were left out or you didn't know this and that? Probably. Sorry about that. That's church. People like you, like me, not perfect. Hey, let's be a church that really gives ourselves to this. So we're going to... Thanks for listening to this talk from New Community. For more information about New Community, check out newcommunitychurch.org.uk.